You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. It's, uh, we are continuing this week in our sermon series on the resurrected life, where we explore how the resurrection actually changes everything, how it gives us uh, hope, uh, in the future, how it gives us uh, present blessings to, uh, to enjoy and to walk in, how it informs the way that we live. And this week, we'll be discussing the resurrected creation, or as the authors of the New Testament often refer to it, the new creation. Um, and, and, and so really, at the core of this is the idea that when Jesus rose from the dead, he made a way for all of the created order, both the heavens and the earth, to be made new, to be made totally new in him, to be glorified and to enjoy the fullness of reconciliation and redemption in Christ. And so let's pray and begin to explore what the resurrected creation, um, uh, what we have to look forward to and what we have to live into now. Uh, Father, we come to you and ask that you'd be with our time uh, together this morning. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We particularly thank you for the blessing of the gathering of your people where we get to to come to be in your presence, to hear your word, to sing praises to you, to be fed by you. Lord, I pray that this morning you would increase our desire for you and for the things that that come from you, that you would increase our hope in the future, um, our our hope in the present as it relates to the future, and that you would increase our love for you and for one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we begin this morning, I I wanna ask you to consider something with me. Consider a time, or or consider really the feeling in your home when there's relational tension with people you live with, right? So maybe that's a spouse or a roommate, or or maybe you can remember a time when there was tension between you and and one of your parents or or one of your siblings, But, but at the core of it is one of you or both of you messed up in a big way, right? And so real sin has caused real problems in your real life and home. The relationship has been fractured. Maybe tempers flared, voices were raised, maybe tears have started flowing, or or maybe silence has taken hold in your home. Think about what that feels like. You know that feeling where it feels like the house knows something's wrong? Where, Where it feels like the furniture is a bit on edge? because of what's going on, where that air conditioner is even hesitant to interrupt the silence by, by turning on because there's just tension in the room. And if you have guests in your home in a time like this, Lord, have mercy upon them, right? Because your home has gone from, from being a safe and comfortable shelter to being a place that they would run out of as fast as they possibly could if it weren't socially unacceptable to do so. And meanwhile, you have this internal dialogue in these moments, right, where, 
where you're consumed with the internal discussion, the consideration of, of what's gone wrong. Maybe you're just going through in your head about all the ways that, that she messed up and all the things she needs to apologize for. Or, or you're, you're self-flagellating. You're just kicking yourself in your head about, how could I have done that? How could I have said that? Man, I, I really blew it. And then, and then there's the waiting game of who's going to speak up first, right? Who's going to actually apologize? Are you going to apologize even though you don't think you should apologize? Are you going to wait for her to apologize or, or for him to apologize? You're, you're just waiting to hear, I forgive you. You're waiting to hear those words. Let's, let's just move on. I'm sorry I got so mad. I'm, I'm sorry that we, this blew up the way it did. Let's, let's move on. Meanwhile, the air in the room has become thick, right? The, the paintings on the wall seem to be talking behind your back. They're probably talking about how they wish they were the decorations in a, in a home much more tranquil than yours. And, and the point of this is that sin causes fractured relationships. It, it causes broken trust. It causes tension. And, and this affects more than just the immediately involved parties, right? It affects your whole house, when sin enters in, and we live in a world, in a cosmos that has been tainted by sin. All of creation has been put on edge because of it. The relationship between God and man has been fractured because of sin, and this has caused the whole universe to be fractured as well. So since the sin of Adam in the garden, the trees have been on edge. The waters have been restless. The owls have been crying out in the middle of the night for relief, for someone to just say, I'm sorry. And, and, and I'm not trying to anthropomorphize plants and other natural objects. I'm not trying to, to equate animals with, with embo the embodied souls of, of humanity, but the Bible does speak to this interaction between God and his creation. And that humanity has a role of caring for the created order. And so just because trees don't have brains and souls doesn't mean they don't orient themselves toward their creator. Doesn't mean that the status of the universe they inhabit isn't affected by the sin that's entered in. And yet God has placed this distinct desire for eternity and peace in the hearts of men. So we too have been restless. Some of you know this passage, but, but I'm gonna to go to Romans 8, beginning in verse 19. The apostle Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, Adam, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the sons of Adam subjected creation to futility and all of creation has been waiting with eager longing. What, what does Paul say they were longing for? The revealing of the sons of God. They're waiting for this, this time when, when the glory of the children of God will be revealed. 
So the creaking sounds of the oak tree in the dead of night, there's, it's not just a natural phenomenon. No, these are cries. These are prayers. These are groanings like a woman in labor. They are painful and yet expectantly hopeful. We often talk about in the church the, how the sin of mankind, how it causes this fractured relationship between us and God, how we are in bondage to sin, how we are corrupted in our hearts. This is often the kind of the bedrock beginning of where we start to introduce the redemptive work of Jesus. But Paul is saying that this sort of bondage and corruption from sin has not only affected mankind, but that it has affected all of creation. So, so like your guests, when you fight with your wife, the cosmos are hostages. They're just waiting for someone to say, I'm sorry, and for God to say, I forgive you. Let's move past this. Paul says in this passage, he says, until now. The creation's been groaning with eager longing until now. So what happened in the days of Paul that made the groaning soften and the bondage loosen? What, what happened? Let's go to Matthew's gospel, chapter 27. If you want to follow along, beginning in verse 45, this is describing the death of Jesus. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This is the middle of the afternoon, by the way, the sixth and the ninth hour. There was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now skipping ahead, it says, and behold, following the death of Jesus, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And so there was a moment when some of the pressure was released in the created order, when some of the, the tension was released. What, what happens? The death and resurrection of Jesus happened, and, and then the sky darkens in the middle of the day. The earth is literally shaking. Rocks are splitting open. Graves are opened up, and dead saints just start getting up, walking into the city. And so as the Christ was crucified, sin was dealt with, and that made the cosmos sigh in relief. What's at the core of all of this? It's the revealing of the Son of God. At the end of this passage, the centurion and those who were with him said, truly, this must be the Son of God. And so Paul said that creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so the revealing of the Son of God gave a shout of hope from the created order because that meant more sons were to come. Forgiveness had been accomplished at the cross and the created order knew it even if all the onlookers didn't. The world knew that reconciliation was on the move and a little bit of tension was released. 
The gospel event of Jesus' death and resurrection allowed for previews or shadows of the new creation to begin breaking through. But as you are well aware, we're still living in the old creation, right? There's still sin and, and brokenness and pain and violence and hunger and famine and war and natural disasters and all these things that when we read the promises of the Bible about what we can expect in eternity, that they won't be there. But, but you don't need me to tell you that we're living in a broken world. What you need is good news in light of that. And the good news is that there will one day be a fully renewed, a fully resurrected, a fully new creation. The Bible talks about this old creation passing away and a new one coming. The world we currently inhabit will be replaced. It will be renewed upon what? The return of Christ. He will return and he will raise the dead. He will judge the world. He will destroy everything that's wicked. Even that final enemy, death itself, will be crushed for good. So the resurrected creation will be one in which God begins to dwell intimately with his people peacefully forever. And it will be not a tense place. There will be no more apprehension in this place. It will be an eternal wedding feast, a cause for celebration, a cause for joy, a cause for a party. So the tension and apprehension and groaning that we've discussed will not only be fully gone, but glory will be ushered in its place. I think we often think of the new creation or the heavenly eternity simply as, as a place or a time that will be free from things that are bad, like sin and death and sorrow. And it will be, and that enough is really good, right? The end of badness is really good, but it will be more than that. The new creation is more than a release of tension. It's more than the elimination of shame. It's more than the end of apologies and the vanishing of violence. It, it's a, it, the new creation for which we long and await, it's not just the end of failure, it's persistent victory. It's not only the end of slavery and bondage, it's the fullness of freedom forever. It isn't just the end of your doubts and anxiety. The new creation will be a place full of security forever, confidence forever. We don't await a new creation that's merely absent of sadness, but we await a new creation that is consisting of euphoria and blessedness saturating every moment and every molecule that exists. So this is what forgiveness does. This is what redemption does. It doesn't just eliminate problems. It creates a beauty that wasn't there before the fracture. And all of this has been secured for us by the work of Jesus on our behalf and on the behalf of the created order. Paul says again in Romans 8, we'll go back to verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Going down to verse 23, he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it 
with patience. So the hope of glory in the new creation means that we can endure whatever befalls us in this life. That's what Paul says. He says, I consider the sufferings of this life as nothing to be compared to the future glory. So while we groan along with the cosmos, waiting eagerly for this fullness of adoption that comes as being sons of God, we wait with hope patiently, expectantly, joyfully. So the resurrected creation is the foundational hope in Christian suffering. Like there's no hope in the midst of sorrow if we don't have promises of something better to come. We suffer in hope of future glory. And the suffering of Christ, which led to his glory, Right? The suffering on the cross of Jesus led to his glory and in his resurrection, that allows for us to know that our suffering too will be completed with glory by God because we're united to Christ. We're not only united to him in his suffering, but also to him in his glory to come in resurrection. Peter lays out kind of an ethical foundation for the Christian life in 2 Peter chapter 3 and he bases this all on the new creation. His argument is, is if we are expecting that Christ is going to come back, that he's going to destroy everything that's evil and replace it with everything that's beautiful and that only holiness will remain, he asks this question, what sort of lives then should we live? Holy lives. Lives that are marked by pursuing the lost so that they might find repentance in God. Lives that are marked by godliness in full because Christ is going to come back and he's gonna destroy everything that's not holy and so we should make our lives to consist only of the things that will remain. Holiness, goodness, brotherly love. And we're empowered to do this because Paul says we have the first fruits of the new creation in that we have been given the spirit of God, which raised Jesus from the dead. And so the spirit of God dwelling within us and among us means that the new creation in part has already come. We already are alive to the beauty of the new creation. We're already part of the resurrected creation. And so that's why we wait, await it so eagerly when we're surrounded by the old. We could talk about how the resurrection of the, of the created order teaches us how to live, encourages us toward mission and, and, and all these things. But I think the most important thing for our congregation this morning is how the new creation should actually inform the way that we worship, the way that we interact with one another, the way that we appreciate this, the Sunday gathering. See, last week, Nick, led us into Hebrews 12, talking about the resurrected family and how Christ's blood has purchased for us the redemption of our families that are no longer marked by the shed blood of Adam's family and and Abel's blood crying out for redemption, but instead Christ's blood cries out forgiveness everlasting. And now let's go back to that passage in Hebrews 12 to learn something about worship. And for context, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 gives this beautiful discourse about how all the saints of the Old Testament were faithful to God based purely upon promises of something that they would never get to taste or see. That is a better country, 
right? It says, as it is, they longed for a better country, indeed a heavenly one. Meaning that Abraham was faithful to God, even though he never got to experience in his life the fullness of the blessedness of God that comes through Christ. But he was faithful nevertheless. So the author of Hebrews is saying, they awaited a better country. And now he says in chapter 12, but you have come. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he's saying, we have arrived at the better country that Abraham and our forefathers in the faith longed for. That, that through faith in Christ, through the gift of the Spirit, we are actually participating in heavenly things, new creation things, future things, but we're doing it right now. The Christian life is one of living on earth and in the heavenly places simultaneously. So on the one hand, we're surrounded by sin and death and sorrow and brokenness. And yet on the other hand, the author of Hebrews is saying, we're surrounded by angels and festal gathering and, and all the saints before the throne of God and, and the promises of God made perfect and the, the sprinkled blood of Christ which proclaims our forgiveness, that we're surrounded by those things and God himself at all times. And so when you come together with the people of God on Sunday morning, you have arrived at Mount Zion. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. If you've read Revelation and, and how it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, then you know that, that, that what we expect is that all the saints will be gathered together around the throne of Christ with all the angels, and, and we'll all be singing praise, reveling in the glory of God's love, celebrating the victory of Christ over Satan's sin and death, and that is actually what's happening in this room right now. Yeah, there's a future version of things in which th that will be all that there is at all times. There's a future version of things where the heavenly Jerusalem won't have leaky ceilings, but what you are experiencing right now in this room is the resurrected life. This is the resurrected creation. The author of Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion, not you're going to go there. Not maybe one day we'll get there. Not, not let's all pretend that we've arrived there. He says, you have come to the city of the living God. The angels are with us and they're watching. Right now, they are here. So when the earth shook as Christ died and the new creation started peeking through, that's the sort of thing that's happening in the life of the church at all times, and our gathered worship is the most tangible experience of that. What's going on in this room is monumental to that degree because we are gathered around to sing praises to, his, to Christ at his throne, to be sprinkled by his blood in the gospel of his victory, to be forgiven by him, blessed by him, and to do this as a mixed multitude, a family of families. This is what eternity looks like. 
So if you show up on Sunday morning and you start to expect that it's going to be a heavenly event, which foreshadows our eternal life together with God, I think we'll probably start singing a little louder. I think we'll smile a little more. I think we will greet each other with a little bit more happiness and excitement and kindness. I think we'll attend to the word of God more seriously. I think that if we start thinking of the Sunday gathering as a heavenly event, the Lord's Supper will start tasting sweeter to you. Because you'll reckon it to be food from heaven, which will sustain you not just until next Sunday, but for all of eternity. If you don't enjoy this and these people, then I'm afraid you have an eternity of disappointment awaiting you. The whole Christian life and experience takes place in this already but not yet state of being. But when we start to realize that the resurrected creation has come in our hearts and in our communion, then even our homes begin to become like little heavens where we realize that the good things of God have come to us in Christ. Imagine your house on your block or, or the door to your apartment in its corridor. Imagine that it's just gleaming a little bit, like a glitch in the old creation that shines brighter because it's a place where grace is understood and readily dispensed. A place whose king is not of this world, but who has come to this world to redeem and renew this world. Brothers and sisters, our lives are rehearsals and demonstrations of the eternal things of God. So let's walk as if that were true. Let's worship more wholeheartedly. Let's pray more expectantly. Let's love one another more unreservedly. Let's forgive a lot more quickly. Smile more easily. Look upon others more charitably. I'm gonna invite you to do something. Um, look at your neighbor. That's not like a pretend you're looking at your neighbor. Actually look at your neighbor. Imagine being next to this person, whoever it is. Imagine that you're sitting or standing next to them in the resurrected creation. That Christ is enthroned in all of his glory before you and he's really pleased to have you there. Now, think about the faults of your neighbor probably not hard. Now, consider this. In that day, those faults won't exist. You won't remember them. And if you do, you certainly won't care. You won't care when Christ returns about those things. The author of Hebrews is saying that this future reality that you've just imagined, which seems so good, so hard to actually even pretend is true, has actually already come because of the gifts of Christ. This is the new creation, so set aside your worries. Set aside your insecurities. Set aside your guilt and shame. Set aside your judgments or your fears of being judged. Brothers and sisters, we don't await a creation in which forgiveness has come. We live in a reality in which forgiveness has already come. Tension has already been released. Glory has come and it has saturated us, at least in part. And so that means that this room should not be one on a Sunday morning where we feel this tension, this apprehension, this fear, these judgments, these insecurities, because forgiveness has come. The things of God has come. Redemption has been accomplished. 
Paul tells us that our conduct on Sunday morning matters in part because the angels are watching and they long for what we have. Now that's a whole sermon series on its own, but, but hear this, there's a way in which this room is more heavenly than heaven itself. The angels are watching and longing for what we have in this room because it's been bathed in the fullness of the redemption and fulfillment of the promises of God in Christ. Meaning that forgiveness has come and therefore there's a beauty that's even greater than what existed before the fracture. The angels long for this. And so out there in the world, church, the the tension still exists. The world is still on edge. But here, when we gather together, the grace of God ought to be so evident to us, so clearly stated, so expressly worshiped and celebrated that that there should be none of that. Everything we do on Sundays, it, it leads us to the table and it does that for a reason because at the table, God feeds us a meal in which he's reminding us that he has forgiven us. That forgiveness has been accomplished. The blood has been shed. The body has been broken. And so our sins have been passed by. So for those of you who came into the, to the room this morning feeling that tension, just, just waiting to hear that God would say, I, I forgive you, let's move past this. The table is saying he has. Forgiveness has come. It's here. So we can breathe easy. We can celebrate. We can rejoice. The resurrected creation is coming and it has come. And when we gather in our neighborhood, it's like the earth is quaking in Montrose. Glory is breaking forth. And so I'm gonna do something we don't usually do. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. We're gonna sing another song together. But I want us to sing as those who believe we have ascended with Christ in glory, that all the things we long for, we get to rehearse and experience right now. Let's pray and then let's sing together. Father, would you sanctify our worship? Would it be lovely to you? Pray that you would put a new song in our hearts that we would be a people of a new song who sing with more gladness than we did before. Pray that you'd fill us with more brotherly love than we had before, more affection for one another, more of a desire to reach the lost than we had before, a a desire to live in holiness than we had before. But but Lord, I, I pray that you would especially make our time together sweeter than it ever has been. That we would understand that that what you've invited us to do in this old building with all of its problems is to embody it as you transform it into a heavenly place where we can experience the fullness of your love, your glory, your redemption, and celebrate it. Pray that if there are men or women in this room who have yet to trust you, that they would feel the overwhelming power of your love and your forgiveness that you have accomplished for them and that they would come to you, 
that they would join us in singing songs of praise, not only this morning, but forever, for eternity moving forward. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please stand as we sing.
Thank you. Amen. Well, before we come to the Lord's table this morning, it's appropriate for us to remember that the scriptures call all who believe to give of their finances to support the ministry of the local church. We're called to do this regularly, sacrificially, and cheerfully as we support the work of ministry. And you can give online uh, via planning center or at sojournmontrose.org, or you can give in physical form at the black box on the table on your way out. We give our first fruits to the Lord at this time because he has given his first fruits to us, which is what we celebrate every week as God welcomes his children to share a meal with him and with one another. The meal is called communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, and it is for every person who has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Hear these words of institution from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we partake of the bread and the cup, we receive Christ and all his benefits. We have our faith nourished and we get a foretaste of the heavenly feast which awaits us. At the table, the church is invited to feast upon the new life that has been obtained through Christ's death. Because of this, the meal is mysterious in nature. And so we insist that it's only for those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. We humbly ask others to abstain from partaking this morning. Before we come to the table, please join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, thank you for the bread and this cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. Enable us to eat and drink in faith, to grow up into the fullness of Christ, and to be conformed into the image of his self-giving love. Amen. In a moment, you can come row by row, beginning in the front. Please take your elements back to your seat, and then we will feast together. Know that there's a gluten-free option as well as both wine and juice present at the table. So for those who have placed your faith in Christ, we invite you to come taste and see that the Lord is good. For in so doing, we proclaim the gospel.
Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you, take and eat of it. the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it. Amen. Well, therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Please stand as we sing the doxology.